Welcome to the Redeemer Church Podcast. Thank you for joining our sermon series in the book of Psalms. Psalms contains incredible truths about God and wisdom for life. Psalms helps us learn how to pray. It teaches us to worship through all the different seasons and emotions of life and how to walk with God daily. We hope these teachings help orient your life to love and worship Christ. Thanks for listening. Well, thank you, David and band, for leading us in that time of worship. And thank you, Seth, for reading that long psalm and, uh, and for starting us off in prayer. I want to say good morning and welcome to all of you who are in the room. Uh, it's good to see you this morning. It's good to gather with you and worship uh, so that we can worship together as a church. I want to say welcome to everybody who's joining us uh, through the live stream. We're glad that you've joined us for worship as well this morning. Uh, if I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is James Valet, and I am the discipleship pastor and a church planting resident here at Redeemer, which means basically that I serve on staff here at the church while I'm preparing and planning to go plant a church. So next summer, uh, my family, my wife, our four boys, and I will be moving to Dripping Springs to plant a gospel-centered missional church there, and we're very excited about that. Uh, we covet your prayers as we prepare to do that, um, and I'm also excited to be able to open up God's Word with you this morning. So I'm going to preach on that psalm that, that, uh, that Seth just read. Um, but first, I promise I'm going to get there, but first, I want to wish you a happy Reformation Day. Reformation Day. <laughs> happy Reformation Day. Some of you knew that was coming. Others are like, what the heck is a Reformation Day? What is this guy talking about? It's Halloween. Um, so Halloween, Reformation Day, whatever you want to call it. On October 31st, this day, October 31st in the year 1517, 504 years ago, a little German monk nailed 95 theses or 95 arguments to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. And all that little monk intended to do, that little monk's name was Martin Luther, by the way, not Martin Luther King Jr., Martin Luther. All he intended to do was challenge the Catholic church to debate these 95 topics. He just wanted to talk about these things. But what he ended up doing was starting a movement known as the Protestant Reformation that changed the world. I'm a church history nerd. I geek out on church history. I like to read it. I like to study it. It is fun to me. And there's so much I'd love to say about the Reformation and these men that God used to do this work. They were imperfect, imperfect men just like me and you, but God used them to do some amazing things. And many of them gave their life for their faith. Many of them were martyred for Jesus and for the gospel. Specifically, under the reign of, of uh, Queen Mary, also known as Bloody Mary, just under her reign in England, 288 Protestants were martyred. I want to tell you about two of them as we get started this morning. The first martyr under Queen Mary's reign is a man by the name of John Rogers. John Rogers grew up in England. He was educated at Cambridge, and he was quickly installed as a Catholic priest. Not long after serving as a Catholic priest, he became uncomfortable and disillusioned with some of the practices and teachings of the Catholic Church. In God's providence, he traveled to Holland and met a Bible translator by the name of William Tyndale. 
William Tyndale was a, a Bible translator in hiding. So he was a wanted man because at this time, translating the Bible was illegal unless it was authorized by the Catholic Church. So Rogers gets connected with Tyndale. Tyndale teaches him the Bible and teaches him the gospel, and John Rogers is converted. Soon after that, William Tyndale gets arrested. He gets found and arrested. And then, but before he's arrested, he leaves all of his Old Testament manuscripts with John Rogers. John Rogers then finished translating them and then compiled them into the first English Bible, complete English Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, under the code name Thomas Matthew. And that's the Matthew Bible. It ended up becoming the first authorized translation of the Bible into the English language. So you can look at your Bible that you hold in your hands. It's written in the English language. And we can thank God for what he did through these men. It's incredible. So Rogers returned to London in, in, I'm sorry, not 1948, 1548. He returned to London in 1548 where he safely pastored a church under the reign of King Edward VI. But this safety ended soon when the king died and his half-sister Mary claimed the throne. A week later, Queen Mary uh, went to London and he was scheduled to preach the following Sunday. John Rogers was. And he did. He boldly proclaimed the gospel that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Salvation is not found through the church. And that sermon was his last. One commentator said his behavior was more than noble. It was magnificent. A week later, Mary orders his arrest. He orders him to be placed under house arrest for six months for condemning him. He's found guilty for teaching contrary to the Catholic Church. He was condemned to death and sentenced to one year in prison. After that, he would be executed. In prison, he lived in horrible conditions for a year. While in prison, Rogers was not allowed to communicate with or see his wife, Ariana, or their 11 children. The day before his execution, he pleaded for one chance to see or at least speak to his family before he died, and his request was denied. The next morning, he was awakened and drugged from his cell. As he was led outside, he walked through the streets in the city where he once pastored, and the streets were lined with thousands of people. And through that sea of faces, he's able to spot his wife. His wife is holding his youngest baby, whom he had never seen before. He's able to make his way over to them, to his wife and his 11 children. And then he's ripped out of their arms and marched to the stake. One writer said, it's difficult even to imagine anything more tender and moving than this parting scene, the last goodbye to a beloved wife and so numerous an offspring, all in tears. But Rogers faced it with the unshaken confidence of a Christian marching to his death. John Fox tells us that as Rogers walked calmly to the stake, he was repeating over and over again, the 51st Psalm. When he arrived, he was offered one last opportunity to recant, to which John Rogers replied, that which I have preached, I will seal with my blood. The fire was lit, and his body slowly began to burn. And as his body began to burn, he lifted his arms in the air, and the crowd exploded. 
J.C. Ryle says, The enthusiasm of the crowd knew no bounds. They rent the air with thunders of applause. For up to that day, no one knew how English reformers would behave in the face of death. And the crowd was emboldened by the fact that some would actually give their bodies to be burned for their faith. Powerful story of a man of God literally giving everything up for the gospel, literally giving his life for the gospel. And as he's walking to his death, he's reciting Psalm 51. Like, why that psalm? Why would he choose that as his last words? Why Psalm 51? Let me tell you of another English reformer, the third martyr under Queen Mary's reign, Roland Taylor, again, condemned for preaching the gospel. On the day of his execution, he went to the stake and kissed it set himself into a pitch barrel, which they had for him to stand in. Then he stood with his back against the stake and his hands folded together, and he lifted his eyes toward heaven and began to quote scripture out loud in English. His executioners then struck him in the face and said, you shall only speak scripture in Latin. But Taylor continued to repeat scripture in the English language so that the commoners standing by him watching this could understand him. And the scripture that he wanted them to hear was Psalm 51. So again, why this psalm? We just heard it read. It's a psalm of repentance. It's not exactly the first scripture that pops into my head when I think about being led to be burned at the stake for my faith in Jesus. So why this psalm? Why this psalm? I believe that these men quoted this psalm because in it is the gospel. In it is gospel Christianity. This psalm forces us to recognize and confess our sin. It teaches us how to repent. And it teaches us to trust wholly and fully in the mercy of our God. I believe that's why they quoted this. And that's exactly what the world needs to hear. And that's what the world needs to see modeled in the church. So Psalm 51, that's where we're going this Reformation Day morning. Charles Spurgeon talked about the difficulty of preaching this psalm. He said, such a psalm may be wept over, absorbed into the soul, and then exhaled again in devotion, but preached? Ah, where is the man who has attempted it that can do anything other than blush at his defeat? So I may be blushing by the end of this Sunday, but we're going to give it a shot. I want to say a caveat. I'm, I'm not going to be able to cover everything in this psalm. There is so much in this psalm, and we could spend months unpacking it all. I want to hit the, high, the big picture, the reason why I believe these reformers quoted this psalm as they were being led to their execution. And here it is. Here's the main point of this psalm. The main point of this song is this. If we want to have an effective Christian witness in the world— then we must be people who confess our sin, who know how to repent, and who trust in the character of God. Those are three components to an effective Christian witness in the world. If we want to have an effective witness in our culture today, we as the church is what I'm talking about. It's Christians gathered together in the church. If we want to have an effective Christian witness, we must confess our sin, know how to repent, and trust in the character of God. That's where we're going this morning. So Psalm 51 let me give you a little bit of context, a little bit of background on the psalm. If you look at the title, look in your Bible, look at the title of the psalm, look what it says. It says, it's a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in 
to Bathsheba. So the psalm very clearly points us to a very specific event that led to this psalm being written. So here's an overview kind of what happened. I want to be quick, but I want you to understand what led to this psalm being written. So King David, King David was the king over Israel, and while he was king, the kingdom reached its height. The most powerful the kingdom of Israel has ever been was under the rule of King David. And while he was at that point, he got complacent, and he committed some terrible sins. This one specifically. You can read of it in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. David was supposed to be at war on the battlefield, but he wasn't. He was in his mansion hanging out. He walked out onto his roof one evening, and he saw a woman bathing. And he said, she's beautiful. So he sent for her. Even after he's informed that this woman is the wife of Uriah the Hittite, one of his most loyal men, but David, so overcome with lust, sent for her anyways, slept with her, and got her pregnant. When David finds out that she's pregnant, he sent for Uriah to be brought back from the battlefield. And then he encouraged Uriah, stay at home, sleep in your bed tonight, hoping that Uriah would then think that the baby was his. Uriah was so noble that he refused this privilege that his soldiers did not have. So David sent Uriah back to the battle, ordered that Uriah be placed on the front line, and then ordered the rest of the army to retreat so that Uriah would be killed in battle, and he was. So effectively, King David committed adultery, tried to create a deceptive cover-up plan, and then had one of his most loyal men murdered. And then he went about his business, just went about living his life. But it says the thing that he did displeased the Lord. And so God sent the prophet Nathan to him to call him to repentance. And Nathan does that by telling David a story. He says, man, there's this guy, he's poor, and he has one sheep. And he just loves this sheep. He treasures, treasures this one sheep. It's the only thing he has. He's like, and then there's a rich man who has thousands of sheep and has everything that he wants. And that rich man saw this poor man's sheep, and he said, I want that. And he took it from him. And then Nathan asked David, so what should, what should be done with this rich man? And David shouts, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this terrible thing. Nathan replies, you are the man. This is you, David. You did this. David instantly sees his sin, and this psalm is the result. This is, this is what, the, the, those are the events that led up to the, this psalm being written. And that should be, just looking at that, just looking at the context of that, there should be some encouragement for those of us in the room who've done some terrible things, who've committed some terrible sins. Just zoom out and think about that. King David, a man after God's own heart, committed some terrible sins, and then he faced them, and God restored him and used him to do awesome, incredible things. The Savior of the world would come from this messed up man. That should give us hope. Like, there is no one who is too far gone for God to restore. David faced his sin. Face your sin, and God will restore you. One more thing about the context. Look back at the title, and it says that this is a psalm to the choir master. I'd never noticed that before. That's very interesting. This is obviously David's personal psalm of repentance for this specific sin that he did. 
but it's, it's written and then given to the worship leader. It's given to the worship leader for the church. It's a hymn for the church to sing together. One commentator said it like this. This was a hymn to be sung by the worshiping congregation of God's people so that repentance and faith could be practiced in community by the church. So right there, there's encouragement just in the context of people who've done terrible things. God can restore you, face your sin, God can restore you. And then here's a challenge to the church. God in his wisdom gave us psalms that are pump-up jams, right, that we've heard preached on. Exciting. Last week we heard God has given in his wisdom to the church psalms that instruct us to wait on the Lord and to cry out to him when we're in need. And then also in his wisdom, God has given to the church psalms to lead us to repentance, to be talked about and sung and practiced by the church so that the church can have an effective witness in the world. We have to be real. Like if we want to have a voice in the culture, we have to be real people. We have to be genuine and honest. So now let's look at these three traits of an effective Christian witness. Number one, it begins with confessing sin. Confess sin. When I heard the psalm read out loud, like it's clear that David is acknowledging his sin here. It says the word sin a lot. It says iniquity. It says transgressions. David is confessing his sin. No attempts to hide it. No attempts to minimize it. Dress it up. There's three elements to this confession, I think, that I see in David's confession here. Number one is he owns it. Like he owns it as his sin. Look at verses one through four. There's no blame shifting here. Verses one through four. Have mercy on me. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned. Eleven personal pronouns in just the first four verses. David is owning his sin. This is where change starts. As long as I blamed other people for my sin, I stayed the same. It begins with owning it. You have to own it. David owns his sin. Next, uh, next component of David's confession is he recognizes his need because of it. He owns it and he recognizes his need because of it. Sin creates, it causes us to be in need. And David, all through this psalm, is talking about the things he's in need of. He needs God to have mercy on him. He's in need of God's mercy. He's in need of wisdom. He needs God to teach him wisdom. He's in need of cleansing. He's in need of spiritual restoration. All because of sin. So he owns his sin, and then he realizes and recognizes that he's in need because of it. Look at verse 1 and 2. I'm a sinner, God. I need your mercy according to your love. Without that, I'm doomed. Look at verse 6. God, I am foolish without you. I need you to teach me wisdom in the inner heart, my inner being, so I don't continue to do this. Look at verse 2, 7, 9. God, I feel dirty because of my sin. I need you to wash me. Please cleanse me. In verses 10 through 11, God, I cannot change my own heart. I need you to give me a new heart with new desires. I'm completely dependent on you. 
for spiritual res- restoration, for you restoring my soul. Have your prayers ever sounded like that? If so, you're in good company. So David owns his sin. He recognizes his need because of it, and he admits that. And then lastly, he says it. He owns it, recognizes his need because of it, and then he says it, which is confessing it. But we can own our sin, and we can realize our need because of our sin without actually saying it to anyone, to God or to anyone else. We see this in this psalm. David is obviously confessing his sin. He's obviously saying it, mainly in verses 3 and 4. We see him say it. But David says it here in general to God. But in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, he says it very specifically to another person. So I want to let a Puritan, Thomas Watson, add some thoughts on confession here. He wrote a book titled The Nature of Repentance. And in this book, he gives us some comments on true confession, And he says, true confession, these two I think are helpful. True confession is specific, and true confession clears God of all fault. True confession is specific. Just as a man who's been attacked by a dog goes to the doctor and shows him all of his wounds. Please fix all of this stuff. So the Christian goes to God and lists specific sins. And if led by the Spirit, lists names specific sins, confesses specific sins to another person. James 5.16 says, confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. Honesty, honest confession of sin in community may be needed so that the pain and the hurt caused by that sin can be healed. But also confession, true confession, clears God of all fault. Bad things happen in our lives. Bad circumstances happen, whatever. Bad things happen in our lives that cause us to stress out, to cause us to get anxious, to cause us to worry, that may cause us to lead to make bad decisions, it may lead to sin. And we can be tempted to confess those in such a way that we attach it to that circumstance that God has providentially allowed to take place in our life. For example, why well, just get I, I got drunk all the time and became an alcoholic because I just couldn't handle the stress of infertility. Or, I I cheated on my wife because she's so sick and I just couldn't cope. You see how that's, you're confessing it, you're saying the sin, but you're attaching it to this circumstance that God has allowed in your life, and thus you're faulting God. He's sharing the fault of your sin with you. That's not true confession. True confession clears God of all fault. It's my sin. I did it. So do you have sin that you need to own? Do you see your need because of your sin? Are you aware of that? Will you confess it specifically in a way that clears God to God or to, his, to another person? So owning it, recognizing our need because of it, and saying it. That's full confession. And that's where the effective Christian witness begins. It's where David begins, the confession of his sin. Then he moves, we must know how to truly repent. So the second element is we must confess our sin and then know how to truly repent of it. I've used that word repent several times. I want to be clear about what it means. To repent is to turn away from something to something else. So there's an example of this. A few months ago, I had to take my car to a shop because it needed some work. 
And so we made plans with my wife. I'm going to take my car to the shop, and I'll, I'll text you when I'm ready, and you can come pick me up. She's like, okay, great. Um, so I take my car, I drop it off. It's South Midkiff. It's on Front Street. So I, I know where I'm at, that part of town. And I send my wife a text, and I'm like, okay, I'm ready. So she loads the kids up and heads out. She knew where the shop was, or general area, because we'd been there before. But she wants to plug in the address just to, just to be sure into the Maps app. Well, she accidentally enters in the wrong address, and she starts heading the wrong way. Siri takes her the wrong way. We'll blame Siri. Siri takes her the wrong way. And so I wait at the shop about 10 minutes, and I wait. About 15 minutes go by, and I was like, 15 minutes, you can pretty much get just about anywhere in Midland. So I was like, I thought this was a fair time to give her a call. I give her a call, and she's like, man. I'm like 10 miles south of town, and it's still taking me south on 349. And so I gently and lovingly and graciously, very graciously, asked her, please turn around and come the right way. Please turn around and come to where I'm at, my location, and pick me up. When you're heading in the wrong direction, and you realize it, and you turn, that's what repentance is, is turning and then heading in the right direction. Repentance, specifically in Scripture, is turning away from our sin to God by faith in Jesus. That's what repentance is. That's what repentance is. And this psalm gives us a great example of repentance. I'm going to look at three traits of true repentance in a minute. But Watson also gives us and warns us, beware of false repentance. Don't be deceived. So here's two ways we can falsely repent. I've been guilty of both of them. So he says, pain and trouble because of sin are not the same thing as repentance. And then resolving to not sin is not the same thing as repentance. So pain and sorrow over sin is not the same. Pain and trouble over sin is not the same as repentance. When I was lost and abusing drugs and making terrible decisions and getting arrested over and over again, like I was experiencing trouble because of sin, and I didn't like it. It wasn't enjoyable. And I even resolved to not sin anymore. I would say it all the time. I'm never doing that stuff again. Never doing it again. I hate it. Not going to do it again. I get out and I do it again. So I wasn't repentant. That wasn't, that wasn't true repentance. I resolved to stop sinning, not because sin was sinful, but because sin was painful. And that's not repentance. What does true repentance look like? Number one, true repentance is sorrow for sin. We see that all over this psalm. David is genuinely broken over his sin. He's experiencing sadness and sorrow because of his sin. And then in verses 16 and 17, he says, that's exactly what God delights in. People broken over sin. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Repentance, true repentance, requires sorrow over sin. Second, repentance requires shame for sin. Shame for sin. We see that in this psalm, in verse 9, David is so ashamed of his sin, he asks God to hide his face from it. God, hide your face from my sin. It's so shameful. Every sin, in every sin that we commit, there's foolishness. Why would we not be ashamed of acting like a fool? As believers, the sins that we commit are worse than those of an unbeliever. 
because we sin against what we know is right and true. That's shameful. I think shame has gotten a bad rap in our culture today. I heard it talked about like you shouldn't, shame is not helpful. You shouldn't feel shame about anything. Shame is not a helpful emotion. In some cases, that's true. Like if something terrible has happened to you and you've been abused, you went through something horrible that was out of your control, yeah, you shouldn't feel shame over that. But feeling shame over sin is a good thing, and it is helpful. Shame over sin is helpful. But also, we don't want to wallow in our shame. We're not supposed to stay in our shame and just live in it. Jesus died to remove our shame. So we experience shame over sin, and we repent and move on. But shame over sin is a trait of true repentance. And lastly, third is hatred for sin. We can see David's hatred for his sin as he pleads for it to be removed from him like it's something dirty that he wants off. He hates it. He doesn't want it anymore. Wash me of it. Purge me of it. He calls it evil in verse 4. Hatred for sin. Everything bad that happens in the world is because of sin. Every painful thing, miscarriages, addictions, broken families, marital affairs, dementia, cancer, all of those things, death, the death of Christ, the only innocent person to ever walk the face of the earth, that's all because of sin. That should cause us to hate sin. Not God. It should cause us to hate sin. Any sin in our lives should be hated. Any sin in our lives should be hated. Sometimes we have these little pet sins. They're like, well, I don't want to get rid of that one. It doesn't hurt anybody. This is just my little pet sin. I don't, I don't, want, I don't want to get rid of it. That sin, if it had its way, it would separate you from your creator forever. That sin that seems so um, harmless, it's so small and harmless, if it had its way, it would keep you from knowing God in the one whose presence there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. So hate it, kill it. That's a sign of genuine repentance. So in order to have an effective Christian witness in the world, we must first confess our sin, then we are to repent of it, turn away from our sin, expressing shame, shame and sorrow and hatred for sin. But it's not just that. It's not just negative Nancy like, oh, man, this is all turn or burn, repentance, shame, sorrow for sin, all that hatred for sin. Repentance is turning away from something to something else. So we're to turn to God. And that's the last element, is to trust in the character of God. That's why all of this is good news, to trust in the character of God. David trusts God because he knows God's character. I like to use the word trust rather than faith or belief. Because I just think sometimes those get um, foggy. But I think trust is very clear. Like trust is like completely depending on something to do what it's supposed to do. Like here's a silly example. The chair that you're sitting in. You exercised trust when you sat down in that chair. You completely relied on it. That it would, you completely trusted that it wouldn't break and that you wouldn't fall. That you wouldn't be embarrassed. In a minute, we're going to stand and sing, and then you'll sit down again for announcements, and you'll trust it again to do what it's intended to do. Same way, Christians are to trust in God. 
we can completely and fully trust that he will do what he says he will do and that he'll be who he says he is. And listen to what David, listen to what, he's, listen to what David says that God does and who God is. Just in this psalm. He says that God's love is steadfast and his mercy is abundant. He says that God's decisions are blameless and just, that God delights in wisdom, that God cleanses us from our sin, that God has the power to create a clean heart and to renew our spirit, that God can restore joy to those who are brokenhearted and uphold them in his hand, that God is righteous and that he can open our lips and give us the ability to declare his praise and that he delights when broken people turn to him. Like, what? That is awesome. Like, now I see why the martyrs quoted this psalm. Like, I want to punch Satan in the face and give myself to be burned at the stake right now. Like, that's incredible. It's incredible. Our God is awesome. I thought this was a psalm of repentance. It's a psalm of our magnificent God. What a loving, good, gracious God we have. Christian, this is your God. Glorious, merciful, loving, wise, powerful. Delight in him. Be satisfied in him. And if you're not a Christian, why would you not want to turn from your sin to this God? trusting completely in him. He will welcome you. He'll wash you whiter than snow, cleanse your conscience, and he'll make you new. Incredible. The martyrs quoted this psalm because it's all about the gospel. That's just the gospel. It's a witness to the power of God to save and change sinners. It begins with a man of God, a, Christ, a man of God, David, a man of God, broken over sin. And then he acknowledges sin, he confesses it, he repents of it, and by the end he's got a clean heart, a renewed spirit, and he's declaring God's praise. Like, that's, that's gospel Christianity. And the martyrs quoted this psalm because they knew when Christians lived this out, God could spark a revival, and he did through the Reformation. If Christians lived this out. So let me ask you, church, we'll end with this. Do you want to see revival in our lifetime? I hit on this a little bit at worship night last Sunday. Do you want to see revival in our lifetime? Do we want to see the Holy Spirit of God poured out on people and the lost repenting and coming to Christ all over the place? I do. Do you want to see this stigma removed from the church? This lie that says you have to have it all together or at least act like or look like you have it all together before you come to church? That's a lie. Do you want to see that removed from the church? So that broken people feel welcome here? I do. I want to see that stigma destroyed. Basically, I'm asking you, do you want to have an effective Christian witness in the world? If so, it starts here, by living this out. I was studying for this sermon at Panera Bread this week, and I had my Bibles out, my computer out, and one of the employees came up to me and was like, what are you doing, man? Bible study? Because I was there for quite a while. And uh, he was like, man, I got here at nine. It's two. You're still here. And uh, are you all right? And I was like, yeah, I'm good. He, he was like, well, what are you doing about? I said, no, I'm preparing a sermon. Uh, he was like, oh, you're a pastor. I was like, yeah, I'm one of the pastors at Redeemer Church here in Midland, Texas. And he responded really well to that. So I asked him, you have a church that you're involved in that you go to? And he said, no, man. He's like, my family's a mess. My wife had some kids and I had some kids and we got married and our family's just a mess and we got to get some stuff together. And I was like, bro. No worries. Like, I'm a mess too. We're all a mess. 
That's why we need Jesus, and that's why we need his church. Like, come check out our church. And he, he shrugged it off and changed the subject. But it's heartbreaking to think that people think that about the church. So how can we remove that stigma? How can we see revival? By living this out, confessing sin, repenting of sin, trusting in God regularly. We cannot expect lost, broken people to feel welcome at church and then to respond to the truth of the gospel. When we, if Christians, and I'm not saying we in this church, I'm talking about the church, when we hear the gospel at least every Sunday and remain unresponsive and unrepentant. We must model this for them. This psalm of repentance was given to the church for us to model true Christianity to the world. That Christians need the gospel too. That Christians sin too. That Christians need to repent too. That Christians need to constantly be casting themselves on the mercy and grace of God. So let's show the world how to confess sin. Let's show the world how to repent and how to trust in God. And let's make it clear that we do that because we trust the character of God. And we know that our church members are not going to shame us or judge us, but they'll love us and pray for us and honor us and encourage us. So let's practice this and pray for revival. The reformers knew that living out this psalm was the only way the people of God would have an effective Christian witness in the world. Let's follow their example. Let's pray. Father, we love you. God, we thank you for being who you are, merciful, loving, wise, forgiving, restoring, welcoming. God, we thank you for being all of those things and more to us. I thank you for this this psalm that you recorded for us, that you put in your word for us. And I pray that you would pour out your spirit on the individuals in this room. I pray that you'd pour out your spirit on this church. And if there's sin that needs to be repented of, confessed, may that happen now. May you convict hearts and do what only you can do in hearts. And let's take a hard heart that wants to hang on to sin and make it a soft heart that hates sin. And I pray that you would do that in this church, God. I pray that you would give us the grace and the ability to confess our sins, to repent of them, and to trust in you. We cannot do that without your help, God. May you do that work this morning through the power of your Holy Spirit. God, and may, if anybody in this room does not know you, God, I pray that you would draw them to your son Jesus now for salvation. God, we love you, we worship you, we honor you because you are the only one that's worthy. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Church. If you want to connect with us at Redeemer, we would love for you to visit us at a service in person or visit us online at RedeemerMidland.org.